welcome to the theology research news podcast theology research news provides updates from ku lufens faculty of theology and religious studies to worldwide academic audience it features interviews with faculty members discussions with visiting scholars and updates about our publications conferences and other events please visit trn at theologyresearchnews.com and follow us on facebook and twitter Today we feature a lecture by Professor Robin Vosser. So Ramon Lull's uh, relations with the Dominican order are complex and contentious, and they've generated a lot of scrutiny over the centuries from his own lifetime right up to our own day. We know he was condemned posthumously as a heretic, and Lull's memory continued to be subject to severe disputes above all between the Franciscans, Jesuits, Dominicans, and others, right through the late 18th century. But as we also know, Lul has since edged closer to formal canonization, and his comparatively ironic approach to Christian-Islamic dialogue has brought him new relevance in the last few troubled decades. But still, there remains much to be examined and debated about his actual achievements and influences, and that's why we're here. Now, I find myself in something of an equivocal position, because on the one hand, I think it's fair to say that most of us here are already quite aware of Lul's most obvious and best established direct connections to the Dominican order, for better or for worse. Uh, But while I must necessarily revisit some fairly well-trodden ground in this talk, and it's difficult as a result to put forward any really shocking revelations, I do also think that there remains a need for some serious reflection on and perhaps some revision of aspects of the Lulian story. As Lul's uh, relations with the Dominicans varied considerably over his long life, and of course the order itself evolved quite a bit over that same period. So I think it's impossible, or rather it's unhelpful, to reduce the matter to a simple question of their being either in an alliance or in opposition to each other. And the same can be said for the Franciscans as well, of course. These were, these were both very large and complex orders. Uh, they had many competing and at times contradictory impulses within them. They were led and staffed by a diverse array of historical human beings whose concerns and priorities shifted over time. So while it remains true that the Dominicans' example and influence could have played a crucial role in the development of Lul's early concept of missionary work in particular, and above all, his approaches to Christian dialogue with Islam, the precise nature and significance of that role, I think, remains open to quite a bit of speculation. So my goal today is to highlight some key points of evidence, both the commonplace and the generally overlooked, which may help us to, well, in the process of reevaluation. And I do have my own conclusions to draw from this evidence. Specifically, I think that the Dominican influence on Lul was in general much less centered on any kind of sophisticated theological insights about the issues dividing Muslims from Christians uh, or the missionary strategies for overcoming them than we might suppose. Lul, of course, was his own man, after all, and uh, this especially when it came to intellectual innovations. Rather, I would say that the friar's preacher provided Lul with some basic role models that were valuable, if in the end somewhat prosaic and ultimately disappointing, uh, but examples nonetheless, 
especially for his ambitions of attracting royal and papal support for his type of Lulian piety. And they also did help to inspire some of his approaches to Arabic studies and the missions to the Islamic world. But it does also seem clear that the Dominicans' main influence on Lul's thinking was in the end quite negative. And this is again not new to many of you. Uh, as he came to see some of their theological teachings as quite antithetical to his own by the end of the 13th century. And indeed, I think that that influence might have been even more negative than has sometimes been acknowledged, perhaps leading to some very serious enmity at times, despite the lack of outright condemnation during Lowell's own lifetime. And I think this was in part thanks to some deliberate conciliatory gestures, personal friendships, and deliberate ambiguities within his writings. Now, whether or not you'll agree with me in the end, fully or partially, remains to be seen, but that's the beauty of conferences, opportunities for our colleagues to come together and share ideas. So I'm looking forward uh, to your possible questions and discussion at the end of this. So I'll begin with some of that well-trodden ground that I mentioned just now, even at the risk of setting up something like a straw man myself, because I have already argued against some of this narrative in the past. And I remain convinced that the nature and the extent of the Dominican missions to Islam, and I know this is, this is debatable, uh, but I do think that it's been quite exaggerated. Uh, Dominicans, along with Franciscans, have of course been long recognized as innovators in terms of missionary outreach to non-Christian peoples in the Middle Ages. We know that Dominic himself was reputed to have wished to preach to the Cumans and perhaps to the Muslims, as did Francis though apparently he never had the opportunity to do so. And Dominican friars were authorized by the 1235 papal bull, cum ora undecima, to go forth, quote, to all men and all peoples of every tongue in every kingdom to prophecy, so that the plenitudo gentium should enter the kingdom of heaven, unquote. And this bull coincided exactly with some exciting developments in Iberia, such as the conquest of Muslim Cordoba, and Valencia in the 1230s, where the ruler, Zaid Abu Zaid, accepted baptism, as well as some of the progress in the East, where, according to sources like Matthew Paris, uh, there were Dominicans beginning to study Arabic by 1236. And as we heard on Wednesday, that's the same year that uh, the prior Philip of the Dominicans met with the Jacobite Patriarch Ignatius II in Jerusalem and received an oath of allegiance to the Holy See. The somewhat vague commission of Cum Ora Undecima was subsequently reissued by Pope Alexander IV in 1256, this time along with some more specific instructions for the Spanish Dominicans in particular to preach, quote, to the lands of the Spanish Saracens and throughout all the kingdom of Tunis and to all other infidel nations, unquote. That Dominican and Franciscan friars did indeed travel to Tunisia, is evident from the papal penitentiary, Dominican Ramon Peñafort's 1235 responsa to some of their queries about how best to provide pastoral care in that region. And Peñafort, of course, went on to serve as the Dominican Master General, and he seems to have maintained a strong interest in missionary initiatives throughout his life. By the 1250s, uh, the Dominican missionary aspirations were also being further articulated by Master General Humbert of Romain. So at the time of Ramon Lul's 
spiritual conversion in the early 1260s, Dominican interest in missionary outreach to the Islamic world was fairly well established and widely recognized. As we know from the famous Barcelona Disputation of 1263 as well, there were leading friars such as Ramon Peñafort and Arnold de Segarra, as well as the converted Jew turned Dominican from Montpellier, Paul Christiani, who were actively engaging in theological arguments with Jewish communities as well. And the phenomenon of the Studia Linguarum was undoubtedly linked to these initiatives, at least in part with the hope of training some friars for possible preaching in Arabic. But the importance of that studia linguarum phenomenon, I think, should not be exaggerated. I've argued this before against the influential writings of eminent scholars such as Jose Maria Coy and Robert Burns, among others, that no such studia actually existed in Tunis, and that those studia that were organized probably only trained a very small handful of friars, and that on a sporadic basis. Uh, the provincial chapter Asignaciones, which are admittedly incomplete, uh, but the Asignaciones that exist for the Dominican Studia Arabica, in fact, reveal a total of only eight students who were sent in 1250, and five, or possibly eight, depending on how we interpret the text, in 1281. Then an unknown number, which may have been zero, in 1304. And finally, five more in 1312. And this last could well have been in response to Lul's own proposals at the Council of Vienne. Now, of course, casual training of individuals may also have occurred, uh, as it did in the East, without leaving documentation, but this is all we know from the actual records. The first of these classes in 1250, and again, this is debated, uh, but I think was almost certainly held on the island of Mallorca, and likely at the instigation of Ramon Peñafort, and so, it may well have been known to the young Mallorcan, Ramon Lul, even before he embarked on his religious career, 13 years later, 14 years later. There's no proof of this, but if it is true, then one can easily understand why a spiritually confused but eager Lul would have subsequently approached the most uh, prominent of all the local Dominicans, Ramon Peñafort himself, for guidance in preparation for missionary work a little over a decade later, as claimed in his Vita Coitania. Pennyfort's disappointing advice, again well known, that Lul should go back to Mallorca rather than undertake formal scholarly training at Paris, has been interpreted in a number of ways, but the result is clear. Rather than pursuing further studies with the Dominicans, whose Mallorcan Studium Arabicum no longer existed by the 1260s, it seems, he went home and taught himself Arabic with the assistance of a Muslim slave for the next nine years. So my point again is that when Lul experienced his initial conversion around 1263 or so, some local Dominicans, and I use local loosely of course, uh, like Ramon Peñafort and the young Ramon Marti, who I'll turn to in a moment, did have a certain reputation for being interested in missions to the Islamic world and for promoting the study of Arabic. And the same can be said of the order generally. But this reputation was based on a very small number of aspirational assertions and an even smaller number of actual initiatives. It's therefore not all that surprising that when Lul finally emerged from his decade of self-directed study and contemplation 
It was not in the urban Dominican convent of Palma de Mallorca, but rather among the rural Cistercians of La Real that he began the first draft of his art. His lack of contact or alignment with the Dominicans at this time, we're in the mid-1270s, is further suggested, of course, by the fact that his proposal for a new Studium Arabicum on Mallorca at Miramar in 1276 was established for Franciscans instead, even though the friar's preacher remained interested in such studies and went on to hold their second documented Arabic school at Valencia, along with a small Studium Hebraicum taught by Ramon Marti, uh, just five years later in 1281. Now, of course, it's impossible to be sure just how much Dominican Arabic study and missionary activity in Muslim lands may have taken place in these early decades, whether it targeted Muslims or schismatic Christians, or Jews, or all three. And many have suggested that what we know, based on these scanty surviving records, uh, about the preachers' studia linguarum and their presence in places like Tunis must reflect only a small portion of what was actually going on. If so, then it may be that a more substantial, if undocumented, network of Dominican language training courses and preaching ventures among the Muslims provided Lul with much more direct inspiration than just that brief consultation with Penyafort. I don't subscribe to this interpretation of the surviving data myself, because I don't believe that it is well supported by the actually quite substantial wealth of other documentation, substantial if still incomplete, of course, uh, that we do have to describe what the vast bulk of the 13th century Dominican order was actually most concerned with most of the time. Of course, it's hard to argue anything from silence, and I will be happy to discuss all of this further with you during the question period if you're interested. But for now, if you'll indulge me, I'll just quickly note a few further observations that can be taken into account when we're evaluating the Dominicans' real commitment to missionary work in the 13th century, and by implication, the reputation that they would have had for such work among courtly gentlemen like the young Ramon Yui. As Leonard Boyle and Michel Mulchehi have pointed out, the vast majority of the medieval Dominican friars were not exactly sophisticated intellectuals with a command of much more than the basics of Christian doctrine. Uh, certainly not Islamic theology or Arabic philology. These were the fratres comunes who never attended any of their orders advanced philosophical or theological studia. Instead, they focused on a workaday routine of liturgical prayer, Bible study, and the performance of various administrative and pastoral functions for the benefit of local Christian communities. Routine preaching and pastoral functions for the benefit for the uh, and provision of the sacraments to Christians was, after all, the main reason for the order's existence, and this should not be forgotten, even as we look to the more rarefied heights of its few missionaries and intellectual superstars. If a seneschal at the Majorcan court, such as Lul was in the 1250s, thought about the friars much at all, it was likely in this sort of light. He knew they were pious Christian representatives of the Orthodox Church. He knew they brought apostolic comfort and services, above all, to underserved communities, such as the merchants and soldiers of a newly conquered place like Mallorca, and indeed to the many Christian merchants and soldiers, mercenaries, and slaves who were also resident in places like Tunis. 
And this work was in itself very important and impressive. And it may explain why Lul decided to name his son Dominic when he was born shortly before Lul's con uh, conversion. But none of this suggests that the Dominicans were primarily known as missionaries, either then or later. The Dominican convent in Mallorca in particular was, was very much a respected religious presence among Christians in the island's capital city. The Dominicans had served the invading forces of James the Conqueror as chaplains when he first seized the island in 1230, accompanied by Lul's father. And their convent, now destroyed, was built just a stone's throw from both the cathedral and the royal palace, which had both been repurposed from Muslim buildings. And these friars continued to serve as royal confessors and advisors long after the invasion was complete, which would, of course, have raised their profile and their importance. And inspired some jealousy, as we know, from members of the secular clergy uh, all over Europe, such as William of Saint-Amour in Paris, who chafed at their intrusion into the lucrative and honorable church duties. But the Dominicans also engaged in some more humble daily activities beyond their strictly political and religious functions. Analysis of the remaining and very extensive archival records for the Mallorcan friars, for example, reveals that these records, these archives, consist today, for the most part, of contracts and purchase deeds. Because the Dominican house at Mallorca, in particular, seems to have been used quite regularly as something of a safe depository for notarial records by specific members of the local mercantile elite. And this was a fiduciary role that the friars evidently took on gladly to assist their valued patrons and supporters. And interestingly, some of those merchants that they assisted with documents were themselves Jews and Muslims. The existence of contracts involving Jewish entrepreneurs and moneylenders such as the Quilano, Al-Fakim, and Abinono families, some of them signed in Hebrew, in the vaults of the Dominican convent of Majorca is not all that surprising, especially since they were all close neighbors to the friars and actively engaged in business transactions with the friars' patrons, Christian patrons. The same could also be said for contracts between local Christians and Muslim traders, such as Yaqub ben Abdallah al-Veli de Morocco. And there are Muslim slaves who also figure in some of the documents, uh, sometimes sold by Christians, other times by Jews. But again, I think it's worth noting this as we consider just how Ramon Lul might have perceived the activities of the Dominicans throughout his childhood and adolescence and around the time of his early spiritual conversion and training that these friars were at least passively helping to facilitate Mallorcan trade with Islamic buyers. We have documentation for large shipments of Ibizan salt to Ceuta, Seville, and Tunis in the 1230s, uh, a voyage by Johannes de Villari in 1259 to Constantine, um, several about the Februari families, extensive cloth sales to Muslim Alicante in the 1260s, and so on. In other words, the Dominicans were not apparently really all that fixated on debating with or pressing infidels to convert at every possible opportunity. Nor, of course, would Lul contemporaries such as Lul or the king have expected them to do that, it would have been disruptive. Perhaps a few anonymous friars were also making some quiet, undocumented trips to preach to Muslims abroad, but if so, that was obviously far from their only or first contact 
with the Islamic world. There's no need to press these circumstantial observations too far. My point is simply that even while we can probably more or less agree with the long established premise that Raman Lul was influenced and perhaps even inspired, at least to an extent, in his earliest missionary aspirations toward Islam, by the knowledge that such aspirations were also championed by the clever, pious, and influential Dominicans that he knew and perhaps admired from a childhood spent in close proximity to their convent, Majorca. This influence and inspiration was likely fairly minor. And it was also somewhat incidental to what would ultimately become the Lulian art in its deployment in dialogue with Islam. And of course, we should remember our source here. Remember that it is Lul himself who later wanted his readers to know about his early Dominican influences and his meetings with Ramon Peñafort. That's the only source we have for that meeting. And that's why he dictated the story about his meeting with Peñafort to the Carthusians of Valverde 50 years later as part of the Vita Coitania. And obviously the Dominicans were not his only models of Christian piety. Cistercians, uh, nor were they his only models for missionary vocation. And of course, he was equally careful to draw attention in his text to how the Franciscans in particular provided him with an initial endorsement of the art at Montpellier in 1274, as well as with volunteers for his Arabic school at Miramar. So, Raman Lul did likely learn some very general notions about the potential and value of Christian missions to Islam and about the importance of Arabic linguistic studies to achieve this from the example of the friar's preacher in the years immediately preceding and following his conversion. Not that he would have necessarily have needed such an example. The mere fact of growing up on a largely Arabic-speaking crusade frontier, surrounded by conquered Muslims, some of whom were accepting baptism more or less willingly in the wake of their capture, not his slave, obviously, but some others, uh, this would have undoubtedly sufficed to inspire these sorts of ideas in many thoughtful souls, with or without the benefit of exposure to someone like Ramon Peñafort. But what about some more specific intellectual influences? What might Lul have actually been taught by some of the major Dominican scholars who were beginning to emerge in the years following his conversion in the 1260s. Again, I like to be realistic about this, and I want to emphasize the relative obscurity and inaccessibility that Dominican intellectual life would likely have presented to a man like Ramon Lul in his formative years, in order to contextualize some of what follows. The fame and impact of the sort of big name Dominican theological, philosophical, and legal treatises, among others, uh, is very hard to escape for those of us who work on medieval Dominican history. And it's uh, probably especially true for people like me who actually work in universities that are named after St. Thomas Aquinas. And this is in some ways, as it should be, the, the writings of Aquinas and Albert the Great. We can go on, Hugh of Saint-Cher, Vincent of Beauvais, Humbert of Romand, de Tarantes, not to mention Peñafort himself and many others in the 13th century alone, these do indeed constitute a very important intellectual legacy. But which, if any, of their works could potentially have influenced Raman Lul in his dialogue with Islam? I'd say it's probably safe to assume that none of them directly influenced Lul, at least in his early adulthood or in his decade of private training after 1263. If we take him at his own word, he had 
little interest in books or learning, let alone religious piety, until his transformative visions inspired him to write a great book of his own for converting non-Christians. He certainly had little knowledge of Latin at that point, and even though this was partly remedied in time, his deficiencies bothered him to the end of his days. Furthermore, even after his conversion, it's unlikely that there would have been all that much that could properly be called Dominican writing available at the Majorcan convent, especially for the consumption of outsiders with shaky Latin and no formal training in theology. The earliest Dominican studies, even in university centers, tended to be fairly traditional using non-Dominican sources. Uh, uh, this is at least true until the curricular reforms of the late 1260s, and the early curriculum instead focused mainly on scripture, patristics, canon law, and the sentences of Peter Lombard. Smaller, more isolated convents such as Majorca would have been unlikely to provide much beyond this except maybe a bit of Arabic once in a while. And even when books were produced uh, by more innovative thinkers like the future saints, Albert and Thomas, rare copies would of course have taken time to arrive, let alone to become available to outsiders in this age of manuscript copying. Things were only starting to change in the later 1260s as Aquinas completed his Summa Contra Gentiles and more philosophical material was gradually added to the prescribed readings for select elite friars, not for everyone. And it's difficult to imagine how Lul could have accessed these in his Majorcan retreat unless he had some sort of Amazon delivery going on. So while it is of course possible that Lul occasionally consulted with the Dominicans and even learned a little bit of Latin perhaps from them at this point, it's highly unlikely that his first exposure to actual books written by Dominicans could have occurred before at least the mid-1270s when he made his inaugural voyage to unveil the art in Montpellier and where he began writing important treatises like the Libre de Contemplatio in Deu. But by then, Lul had already formulated the essence of his missionary system, including his ideas about the divine attributes that we've discussed, which he would continue to champion for the rest of his life. Well into his 40s and fully engaged in his own writing and self-promotional travel, it seems implausible to me that he would have immediately stopped to engage in a new round of deep philosophical or theological reading at this stage. He certainly makes no claim of having done so in the Vita, nor is there much evidence of particularly Dominican thought in writings of the so-called quaternary phase. And none of this has prevented speculation about possible influences, and of course, close readings, if we do more close readings of various Lulian works, which rarely reveal their sources, as we know, uh, it could provide us with further evidence. But so far, it seems unlikely that Lul seriously devoted himself to any close readings of Aquinas or other Dominican writers until quite late in life. After his disappointing first efforts to teach the art at the University of Paris around 1288, He's in his mid-50s. He must have realized the importance of learning to reframe his ideas in more scholastic terms. But even then, there is little to suggest a significant Dominican intellectual influence until precisely the period in which he made his trip to Bugea in 1307, which is in his 70s. 
As Anthony Bonner has pointed out, the later ternary phase of Lewell's writings slowly began to shift toward exhibiting a greater interest in scholastic logic after about 1303. And then by 1308, significant date, uh, he developed an almost exclusive fascination with syllogisms, some of which can already be discerned in the Disputatio Raimundi Christiani et Homeri Saraceni. Now, how much of this came from readings of Dominican texts, as opposed to others drawn from the general university milieu, is impossible to know. But in 1309, he did make a rare, brief, and somewhat misleading reference to the Summa Contra Gentiles, uh, which reveals his awareness by now of its importance, but not necessarily its full contents. Um, I learned this actually from Anna Maria, thank you, uh, who, who shows that um, uh, the misleading part here is that the Summa was written, quote, for unbelievers who want to abandon believing for understanding, unquote, as if the Summa is in total agreement with Lul's rational method. So Lul was familiar with Aquinas and presumably leading, reading some Aquinas before 1309, but still I find it very hard to see any relation at all between his treatment of the divine attributes in the Disputatio Raimundi Christiani, for example, and that given by Aquinas in the Contra Gentiles or the Summa Theologiae, for that matter. I, I've done some sampling and I just can't see any connection there though others may be more expert than I in that matter. Now, Lul's general lack of engagement, at least direct engagement with Dominican authors, if you will accept my line of argument, includes even those who might be supposed closest to him in outlook, such as Ramon Peñafort and his missionary protege Ramon Martí. There are, of course, circumstantial factors to suggest a connection. Martí was indeed present in regions visited by Lul, even if their paths did not precisely meet, and he was a familiar of Ramon Peñafort's. But I still think that Lul's degree of contact with Peñafort should not be exaggerated, as even his own late account suggests that it was casual at best, and perhaps dismissive. And while it's true that Martí was a member of that first documented Dominican Studium Arabicum at Mallorca in 1250, and so he was living in close proximity to Lul for at least a year, this was of course at the beginning of both their careers. They weren't famous. Uh, and the two young men, one of them was an earnest novice friar, and the other a self-described playboy courtier with a penchant for troubadour love songs, it's unlikely that they would have had any reason to meet for more than a nodding acquaintance on the street in passing, perhaps. Marti's first short written works, the apologetic Explanatio Symboli Apostolorum and the anti-Islamic De Seta Mahometi, only appear at the end of the 1250s, and they failed to garner much of a readership, even among his fellow Dominicans. In his 1267 anti-Jewish Capistrum Judeorum and 1278 uh, Pugio Fidei similarly never became part of the friar's curriculum and would have been known mostly to a very small inner circle of order specialists. Now again, there's no way to prove that Lul was unaware of them, but likewise there's no real reason to presume that he would have read or even heard that much about them either. In other words, frustrating though it is, we really do need to conclude, I think, that it's just as plausible that Ramon Lul never really studied any specifically Dominican texts, including Martí's, 
until perhaps quite late in life, if at all. And that even then, they may not have provided him with any particularly valuable insights that he had not already obtained in some other way, including the untraceable insights of oral transmission throughout his travels and dialogues with a wide range of church figures from all different orders and the secular clergy. Still, while he may never have actually read any of the friar's books, I think it's rather more likely that Lua was aware, or at least later became aware, of Marti's presence at Tunis in the late 1260s. Now, a lot of attention has been paid to this, and in some ways it constitutes the most important example of what many consider to be the Dominicans' real influence uh, on Lua's missionary thinking. But if Marti's alleged missionary activities were a lesson for Lul, then the lesson was an entirely negative one. And if it is true that this was a lesson for him, then Marti's personal example probably elided in ways that are no longer clearly discernible with the lessons that could be drawn from Marti's actual writings, as well as the teachings of other Dominicans, such as Thomas Aquinas, whether these were received orally or through textual study. Because Let's remember, Aquinas also wrote in the Summa Contra Gentiles, as well as the De Rationibus Fidei, and the later Summa Theologiae, in what I could interpret as theoretical support of precisely the sorts of religious dialogue, or better, non-dialogue, that Lul would later accuse Marti, or someone like him, of practicing in Tunis. And from Lul's point of view, what was practiced by the Dominican in Tunis, perhaps, was a foolish practice, which had wasted a golden opportunity to convert one of the most important Muslim rulers. If we can indeed connect this lesson to the Dominicans, whether Marti, via Marti, Aquinas, or others, then it might be one of the keys to understanding why Lul developed such an apparently negative attitude towards some Dominicans in the later ternary phase of his life from around 1290 to 1309, after having made such an apparently positive start with Ramon Peñafort 30 years previously. Ephraim Longpre's identification of Ramon Marti as a friar missionary who appears in several related Lulian tales has by now become widely received wisdom. But, as Chaim Hames has perhaps most clearly laid out, the situation is almost certainly more complicated. Lul's first mention of the famous failed mission to Tunis anecdote appears in the Romance de Vas de Blacarna, written between about 1276 and 1283 at Montpellier. But in this early rendition, the hapless protagonist is not identified as a friar. He is in, instead merely described as a Christian, who somehow ends up convincing an unnamed Saracen king that Islam is false, while admitting that the Christian articles of faith can't be proved either. The whole tale is told at third hand in the voice of a fictional envoy, and in the denouement, we have the Pope sending out a new mission of Arabic-speaking friars, armed with special books and arguments, presumably lules, to convert the Muslim king. The friar's order is not specified. And so this has all the hallmarks of an idealized parable, intended, like the rest of the book, to demonstrate the wisdom of Ramon Lul and his plans for global proselytism. Thereafter, similar tales are told in Felix, the Disputatio de Cinc Savis, the Disputatio Fidei et Intellectus, the Liber de Fine, the Liber de Acquisitione Terrae Sanctae, 
And finally, the liber de conveniencia, quam habent fides et intellectus in objecto. Only in the last two of these, both written in 1309, at precisely the same time that Lul can be first shown to have a real awareness of the Summa Contra Gentiles, only then is the would-be missionary identified as a friar of some sort. All the others variously designate him as a monk, a hermit, or simply a Christian. Neither the name of the missionary nor his order is ever revealed. In some accounts, though, including the last, a point is made that while he may have been well-trained in Arabic, his lack of theological or philosophical knowledge made success impossible. Now, if this was meant as a description of Ramon Marti, then either Lul was bending the truth significantly for the sake of telling a good story, which he did, um, or he was completely unaware of the Paris-trained Marti's actual oeuvre. Furthermore, the setting of the tale is only specifically placed at Tunis in one account, in the Liber de Fine. And here the missionary is described as a monk, not a friar. So again, Lul was clearly not letting consistency or facts, if he remembered them or really knew them in the first place, uh, get in the way of a universally useful exemplum. Modern scholars' eagerness to find kernels of historical truth embedded within Lul's notoriously creative and utilitarian rhetoric may have blinded us to the fact that this could simply be a series of well-crafted stories meant to convince kings and church leaders of the value of his particular Lulian approach to dialogue with Muslim interlocutors. For though we do know that Ramon Marti and a colleague were indeed present in Tunis at some point in the late 1260s, extant documentation sheds very little light on precisely what they were doing there. I have my own guesses as to why some Dominican friars with documented ties to the French royal court might have been present in the Hafsid capital in the months leading up to St. Louis' crusade of 1270. And these involve pastoral care to the long-established Christian communities of this international port city, but also perhaps espionage in service of the French, rather than some sort of imagined conversionary audience with the emir, which stretches credulity. But other scenarios are perhaps equally plausible in the absence of any clear evidence to the contrary. I'm willing to debate it. Now, leaving the actual veracity of Lul's vague anecdotes to one side, the fact remains that the Dominican friar Ramon Marti, in accordance with his increasingly influential confrère, Thomas Aquinas, was convinced that some truths of the Christian faith were indeed neither provable by means of rational argument, nor were they appropriate topics of debate with infidels in most cases. As Aquinas clearly states in the Summa Contra Gentiles, quote, the sole way to overcome an adversary of divine truth is from the authority of scripture, which I think Ryan will talk about next. And this is an authority divinely confirmed by miracles. For that which is above human reason, we believe only because God has revealed it, unquote. Similar notions can be found in the Puccio Fidei as well. And Aquinas further argues, quote, there are certain likely arguments that should be brought forth in order to make divine truth known. But this should be done for the training and consolation of the faithful, and not with any idea of refuting those who are adversaries. For the very inadequacies of the arguments would rather strengthen them in their error, since they would imagine that our faith was based on such weak arguments." Unquote. 
This assertion, of course, echoes teachings of Thomas's former master, Albert the Great, in his commentaries on Pseudo-Dionysius and the unknowability of God. And one could also look to Maimonides, among others, for further sources. But it clearly runs contrary to the entire Lulian project of providing fundamental truths of the faith, including the Trinity and the Incarnation, by means of necessary reason. And while I don't think that he was fully aware of this negative Dominican theology in the early stages of his spiritual career, its implications can't have failed to be transmitted to him in some way or another, at least orally, by the late 1280s or 90s, when Lul began attending not only universities, but also the papal court, and even a few Dominican general chapters in his efforts to gain support. So while Lul, like the Franciscan Roger Bacon, was convinced that the faith could be proved to Muslims using reason alone, those friars who followed Aquinas disagreed and worried that such a reckless and unpromising approach might actually harm the faith. Now, one or the other of these had to be proved wrong. And whoever persisted in their error would be foolish at best, a liability to Christian interests at worst. Now, the last decade of the 13th century is indeed the point at which Lul claims to have experienced a severe crisis of faith. In 1293 or thereabouts, as he later recounted in the Vita Coetania, Lul found himself in Genoa faced with a decision. Should he now give in and join the Dominicans? or stand firm against their increasingly passive, negative theological approach to external mission. This is a strange section of the text in which Lul seems to be convinced that he actually received divine instructions to ad adopt the Dominican habit. But he ultimately decided not to, even if it meant eternal damnation, as he says, because he believed so strongly in the Lulian method, and he knew the Dominicans were unlikely to support it. Instead, aligning himself with the more amenable Franciscans as a tertiary, he finally embarked upon a new phase of his missionary calling by making, finally, his first real trip to the Dar al-Islam and set sail for Tunis later that same year. The visit, of course, resulted in no royal or mass conversions, and he was instead imprisoned before being expelled, but Lul remained undaunted. Now, we know the rest, the constant travel and preaching campaigns in the capitals of Latin Christendom and as far afield as Cyprus, in hopes of rallying support for the art and associated missionary projects. Lul also tried again to preach to Muslims directly, first before captive audiences at Naples, Lucera, and the Crown of Aragon in the 1290s, and then in the 1307 episode at Bujaya, recounted in the Disputatio Remundi, before finally taking his ill-fated last trip to Tunis around 1315. And at the end of his life, Ramon seems to have come to terms, however bitter, with the possibility that he was in fact the fool as a result of his repeated missionary failures. But this was a notion that he tackled head on with typical Lulian chutzpah in late works such as the 1311 Fantasticus, written like the Vita Coetania in anticipation of his appearance before the Pope and Council at Vienne. But again, typically, Ramon's argument was that he was not the real Fantasticus. That was a label more properly applied to his adversaries within the church, here represented not by a Dominican, but rather by a secular cleric named Peter who neglected his true spiritual duties for the sake of honors and comfort and material gain. Ramon might be a fool for giving all to God's service, even with increasingly limited hopes of success, but he was God's fool. 
And Lil was now as confident as ever that his good intentions and unwavering devotion made him the true Christian. And I suspect that his criticisms of the more worldly and passive Peter could have been perceived and were perhaps intended also as veiled critiques of some of the overly comfortable Dominicans he knew, as well as others. Now, of course, Lul was in fact never really much of a fool, and he did his best to avoid clashing directly with the Dominicans. He remained on good terms with some of them, as evidenced by his lengthy stay at the Pisan convent of San Domenico, where he wrote up the Latin version of the Disputatio Raimundi in 1308, perhaps even with their Latin editorial assistance. It was presumably easier to stay friends in places like Genoa and Pisa at this time, rather than back in Languedoc, where the Franciscans and Dominicans had literally been at each other's throats for a full decade, and where Lul's ties to anti-Dominican activists like Arnold of Villanova and Bernard Delicieux were quite hard to ignore. Now, there's no way to confirm this, but I imagine that while in Italy, he may also have heard about or even met Ricol de Montecroce after his return from the East to Florence in 1301. Would Lul have been amicably impressed by this Arabic-trained Dominican friar, who in some ways put his own efforts to shame by spending 12 years among the Muslims and studying the Quran in their original language, while Lul had at this point only made a single brief trip to Tunis? Or would Rickold's account of his travels have further confirmed Lul's disapproval of a Dominican tendency to focus more on dialogue with fellow Christians, even schismatic ones, while avoiding high-stakes conversionary debates with Muslims. Perhaps Lul's repetitive tale of the friar who failed to convert the Sultan, the majority of which were written after 1303, actually reflects a subtly composite critique of both Ramon Marti and Ricol de Montecroce, among others. Now, I can't prove this, but I think it bears consideration. Because Lul's otherwise total silence about Ricold seems curious to me, given their shared interests and their ge geographical proximity in the 1300s. I think it's clear that Lul was at odds with some of the increasingly entrenched normative theological positions taught in the Dominican order by the turn of the 14th century at least, even if it was impolitic to say so openly. His late attacks on the so-called Averroists after 1298, which as Van Steenbergen has suggested, probably veiled an oblique attack on some of the Aquinian propositions banned at Paris in 1277 are another example of this. But still, Lul was ever a savvy politician, and veiled attacks tended to suit his purposes better than frontal assaults. He knew that the Order of Friars Preacher was always a potential force to be reckoned with in the church, even if its friars came close to falling from grace at times, thinking of the scandals associated with Munio of Zamora, as well as various episodes of anti-mendicant criticism. The Dominican papacies of Innocent V and Benedict XI, while short-lived, were potent reminders of this reality. And so he remained friendly with friars of all sorts whenever he could. He noted their connections to his, his connections to their orders in his vita, and he kept his criticisms more or less opaque. To conclude, diplomacy could only go so far to forestall an inevitable Dominican backlash, because there were hard feelings. And this eventually took the form of a direct attack by the Dominican inquisitor Nicholas Emmerich, whose Directorium Inquisitorum in 1376 features several outraged sections devoted to Raimundo Lulo et eis erroribus. Specifically, denouncing Ramon as an ignorant fool, completely lacking in Latin, 
fantastici imperiti totaliter grammaticam ignorabat. Friar Nicholas claimed to have identified at least 500 errors in Lewell's writings. And obviously there's no time to analyze these in depth today, but it's interesting to note that several of them touch specifically, not just on the question of mission to Muslims, but on the piety of Dominicans. First, Americ was offended that Lewell had allegedly thought unbelievers could be saved by their good works and love of God without necessarily adopting the Catholic faith and above all its sacraments. And several other alleged errors centered around the Lullian claim that reason was sounder and a more reliable way of bringing people to Christianity than was simple faith, especially when dealing with educated populations. And finally, Americ saw at least indirect attacks in Lewell's teachings against Dominicans like himself who chose to devote their efforts to inquisition rather than mission. For example, Emmerich quotes Lull's Liber Contemplationis to the effect that, quote, those who do not commit themselves wholeheartedly to mission are in error and should fear God's punishment, unquote. And that those who instead cause the death of so-called heretics actually go against the intentions of Christ. So we can see why inquisitors might feel personally insulted by this. Though Emmerich never spoke for all Dominicans, and indeed he was fiercely opposed by many Dominicans in his own day, his verdicts may have had roots in the conflicts that dated back to Lule's own lifetime. But even if they were a more of a reflection of tensions between Emmerich himself and later 14th century Lulistai, his condemnations and their approval by Gregory XI did contribute to what would eventually become a predominant evaluation of the Doctor Illuminatus and his teachings within the order especially once the Directorium was printed around the turn of the 17th century. Lulism was ultimately branded as dangerously heterodox, if not downright heretical, and therefore to be suppressed whenever possible. Thanks to various royal and ecclesiastical interventions, Lul's books were only sporadically placed on the index of prohibited books, but they were severely criticized and kept out of the hands of many readers in the later Middle Ages and early modern period as a result. Now, such negative evaluations were not expressed explicitly by Dominicans during Lula's lifetime, as far as I am aware, though there were certainly challenges at Paris in 1288 and again in 1309. But the fundamental disconnect between Lula's and the preaching friars' very different approaches to proselytization of Muslims and others must have been evident long before Emmerich took up a poisoned pen. My conclusion then is that while Dominicans such as Ramon Peñafort may indeed have provided some inspiration for Lulian Arabic studies and missionary work, assuming that this was not exaggerated in his later writing uh, to curry favor before the Council of Vienne. Nevertheless, positive inspiration uh, from the early days had mostly turned to disappointment and even bitter opposition by the end of the 13th century at least. Conscious of Aquinas, Marti, and others who saw philosophy only as a means of defending Christianity Rather than bringing unbelievers to conversion, Lul chose to remain true to his convictions and rejected the easy way out offered by God, if we are to believe his account, uh, as he contemplated joining the order at Genoa around 1293. Instead, he chose to take numerous opportunities to use the Dominicans and their perceived turn away from serious missionizing as straw men in order to illustrate the value of his own alternative approach. Thank you very much. <laughs>